Welcome to the Women in Public Policy Program Seminar Series Podcast at the Harvard Kennedy School. All right, great. Let's go ahead and get started. Yeah. Uh, welcome, everybody. I'm uh, Hannah Riley Bowles. I'm the research director here at the Women in Public Policy Program, which enables me to host this uh, terrific seminar. Today's um, speaker is uh, Professor Corinne Moss Raskusen, who from the Department of Psychology at Skidmore College. Um, Corinne is a very exciting psychologist working on diversity issues. Um, I think a lot of psychologists would argue, a lot of academics would argue that, you know, their real um, purpose mission is to produce knowledge, and the practice part is for those people who figure out how to translate knowledge into practice. And, um, and it's even quite daring a lot of times within academia to try to publish research that's practice-oriented because it, it almost uh, violates the norms. And Corinne is one of these people who is really out there um, not only looking at kind of practical perspectives but actually saying if we test our best ideas, do they make a difference in institutions? And that requires not only really smart theory but remarkable organizational skills to actually get people willing to try to, uh, to be open to, to doing this within organizations. And so I'm so excited um, to introduce Corinne, and we're going to hear about some of her research about um, using theory and advancing theory um, by thinking about how do we bring these ideas into the workplace. So um, please welcome join me in Thank you, Hannah, for that great introduction. Thank you for having me. Um, thank you all for being here. I really have been looking forward to this chance to talk with you about some of my research on the ways in which gender stereotypes can constrain opportunities within STEM fields. And just for the purposes of our talk today, when I say STEM, I'm referring to science, technology, engineering, mathematics. So let me give you a sense for what I'm going to be covering during our time together today. I'm going to start with a very brief review of some relevant literature. I'm going to talk about some evidence for lingering gender disparities within these fields. And I'm going to briefly touch on the role that gender stereotypes might be playing. And then I'd like to talk to you about a couple of different lines of research. Now, I have a bunch more data I could share on each of these lines of research, so I want to give you a key snapshot of what's going on in each of these lines of work. I'm happy to share more for, for, for anyone who has questions. So first, I'll talk about um, some of my work uh, demonstrating faculty members' gender biases. And then I'd like to share some new data looking at the consequences of these biases for students directly. And then I'll spend most of the end of our time together today talking about um, some work on interventions and looking specifically at evidence-based intervention research to reduce gender bias both among the general population and STEM faculty. So I want to begin by painting a picture of the persistent lack of diversity at some of these highest levels of STEM fields. And to do so, I'd like to show you a picture of the last 10 Nobel laureates in physics. So here they are. And at a quick glance, we can get a sense for the fact that this is a fairly gender homogeneous group. I'm just curious, if you had to guess, so there's been 196 total laureates in physics. If you had to guess, what percent would you guess are female? 20. What'd you say? It's one or two percent. One or two percent? Less than one. Less than one. Anyone want to be wildly optimistic? There's only two. So we're at 
two total. So the first being Marie Curie around the turn of the last century. Most recent, 1963. We look at the picture in chemistry. This is a field where the gender disparity is actually a little bit less robust. Any guesses for the percent of female laureates in chemistry? Marie Curie. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty close. We're around the same. So it's four. Um, most recent in 2009. Before that, 1964. And once again, Marie Curie is represented in this area. So she's she's double counted. So I bring this up not at all to undermine the incredible and important scientific achievements of these individuals, but rather to highlight the fact that despite some progress that we have made, there remains a very persistent gender disparity at these highest levels of scientific achievement and recognition. And if we look at the data more, more formally, they bear out this trend. So here, I'll show you percent. These are percent male and female faculty across all different kinds of academic institutions. So we can see along the um, axis here from, from R1, or very high research productivity institutions, all the way over to med schools, a significant gap in the percent of faculty that are male versus female. And the student data are similar. So these are women's shares of science and engineering undergraduate degrees. Lots of variability by specific field over the last decade. But one thing to highlight is that rather than seeing women's participation raising <coughs> noticeably, we see it flattening in fields like engineering, stuck at 20%, or even decreasing in fields like mathematics or computer science. So what's going on here? What could be some of the factors that are contributing to these disparities? So first, researchers were interested in potential intrinsic ability differences. So perhaps it's the case that women are somehow inherently less competent in these mathematically intensive fields relative to men. Now, a lot of studies have examined this. Several meta-analyses conclude that there's very little evidence to support this idea. There may be some small differences at the very tail ends of the distribution, but not enough to account for those kinds of significant or robust disparities that I've been showing you. So researchers then turn their attention to things like occupational and lifestyle choices. Uh, choices whether free or perhaps constrained by some of the stereotypes that we're going to talk about. So perhaps it's the case that women inherently prefer other kinds of work, or they're choosing to engage in caregiving practices, having children, caring for elderly family members, and the time spent doing that is simply incompatible with the number of hours necessary for these very intensive STEM positions. There is some correlational evidence that choices may be playing a role, but at the time there had yet to be a clear experimental test for the potential role of gender bias in shaping these disparities. So put another way, my collaborators and I wondered, would equally qualified male and female students in science be responded to equally by faculty members? Would they be judged as equally competent and advanced at the similar levels and mentored equally? Or might there be a potential biasing role of gender stereotypes play? So when I refer to gender stereotypes, what am I talking about exactly? So I'm going to boil down a huge body of social psychology literature into one slide. So let me know if, uh, if anyone has any questions. <clears throat> so generally, there's a discrepancy between the kinds of traits that we ascribe to women and the kinds of traits that we ascribe to men and to successful scientists. So generally, we think of women as possessing a host of traits that we call communal, so more emotional, more supportive, more nurturing, focused on the family. And we think of men as being more agentic, so things like analytic, 
ambitious, risk-taking, and focus more so on the career. Now, when you look at these two traits, these two bodies of traits, which one matches up better with your expectations of a scientist? <laughs> the agentic traits, right? So we want our great scientists to be analytic and risk-taking and focused on their work. And at the same time, there's a disconnect then with these communal traits. We don't necessarily think of great scientists as being emotional or nurturing or focused more so on their home life. So the resulting stereotype is that there's this expectation that women are less likely to be competent in these STEM fields. And a host of studies have demonstrated this. One that I really like is this large cross-cultural sample demonstrating a strong <coughs> automatic or implicit gut level association between men and science, as well as an explicit or self-reported association, more so men in science than women in science. So these fields seem to be gender stereotyped in a way that's consistent with men's abilities rather than women. So just because we've identified these stereotypes doesn't yet mean that we have evidence that there's actual bias. We don't know if people are acting on these things. There was related evidence to suggest strongly that this might be the case. So first, a report that came out of MIT suggested that resources may be inequitably distributed to men and women within STEM fields. So women being assigned to poorer lab space, um, more committee work, things that would keep them out of the laboratory really focusing on their research in ways that's necessary to advance. A host of studies that we could spend the rest of today reviewing have demonstrated experimental evidence of bias in other fields, so other kinds of contexts. So preferences for men in male stereotypic fields and preferences for women in female stereotypic fields. And female STEM students are themselves reporting that they view themselves as encountering bias on the part of the faculty members and students who interact with them in these STEM classes. But again, there had yet to be a clear experimental test for bias within these fields. So this is what we set out to do. To do so, we recruited about 130 um, participants who were research faculty members. So these are faculty members at R1 universities Throughout the US, they were biologists, chemists, and physicists. And I'll note that their demographics were representative of national averages of this community. So we can generalize from these results with some confidence. And we asked our participants to rate uh, the lab manager application of a student who had allegedly applied to be a lab manager within this past year. And they were told that their feedback would be sent to this student. So there were some consequences associated with the feedback that they provided. And they read the identical set of materials that was either attributed to a male or to a female student. So exact same qualifications, described as either John, who's applying for this job, or Jennifer, half of the participants. Is your name Jennifer? Yes. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and we did, I'll say it now, pretest these names um, to ensure that they were viewed as equivalent on just about every dimension we could think of. So equally recognizable, likable intelligent, warm. So any differences between these conditions should really be due to the gender of the student and not to any superficial differences associated with those names. And I'll say now that there were no effects associated with participants' demographics. So faculty members' gender, their age, their racial background, their science field, those things didn't matter. And I'm happy to talk more about that in, in more detail if anyone's interested. These seem to be general effects that I'm about to show you. 
So we asked them to indicate how competent the student was, how likely they would be to hire them, the salary they would offer them, and the amount of mentoring that they would offer them um, in ways that would be very relevant for a student who wanted to go on to a research-focused career in graduate school as this student indicated that they wanted to do. So here's what we find. Yeah, Wait, just to clarify this, um, were these faculty members actually searching for a lab assistant? Yeah. So you guys responded to like an ad, or did you just like send them these applications out of the blue? We just sent them these applications. So it's not a traditional audit study, right? They weren't actually searching for a lab manager applicant. We did control for the amount of experience they had hiring lab managers in the past. That didn't seem to matter. But they all had a great deal of familiarity searching for lab uh, managers. So these were positions that they were familiar with. Okay, so here's what we find. For every dependent variable, we find a significant difference between the male and female student. So the male student relative to the identical female student is rated as more competent, more likely to be hired, and more likely to be mentored. And again, no effect of faculty gender. So it's not that only female faculty are doing this or only male faculty are doing this. They all seem to be engaging in these processes. Again, identically qualified students responded to really differently as a function of their gender. We find the same pattern for salary data. So about $4,000 per year difference in starting salary offers. That would um, result in about $16,000 lost pay over the first few years alone if the student remained in the position. But we know that most raises are based on a proportion of your current salary, right? So this difference would likely widen and accumulate over time. So some preliminary um, conclusions from this first line of research that I'm showing you. First, again, this is the, the first experimental evidence of faculty gender bias within a STEM context. There have been several conceptual replications of this effect. Um, similar effects, similar design in a mathematics job, so favoring male applicants relative to identical female applicants for a job in mathematics. <clears throat> um, faculty more likely to respond to an email um, requesting a, a mentoring meeting from a, a male named student relative to the identical female student. And then finally in judging the, the scientific merit of conference abstracts. So we're finding some converging evidence that this type of gender bias is pervasive across STEM contexts. And I would argue that this could have both a direct and an indirect effect in shaping some of those disparities that I showed you at the beginning. It could have a direct effect if women are encountering really overt instances of bias, but it might also have an indirect effect if they're encountering sort of a chillier climate, something that might be biased, might not be. That could shape or constrain some of their choices, some of their occupational preferences or lifestyle choices that we, that we mentioned. I also want to stress again that this bias was not exhibited by a subgroup of the faculty. Male, female faculty, young, old, biologists, chemists are all demonstrating these effects, likely because we're all fairly equally exposed to these pervasive cultural stereotypes driving the bias. <coughs> and then finally, I would argue that there are, are some important implications for how we think about meritocracy in a STEM context, in an academic <coughs> context more broadly. And that these data maybe uh, undermine or contradict our, um, the goal that many of us share, which is to train and advance the most talented scientists or students, regardless of their demographic background. So the question that, that these data really posed for me next is, 
what are the consequences of bias for students' engagement in STEM fields? So if, if we know this bias exists, is it impacting students' choices or how they interface or interact with these fields? So put another way, the, the question that's going to motivate this next um, set of, of studies or this next line of research is, does gender bias directly contribute to women's underrepresentation or, or, or students' choices about how to engage with these fields? An alternate hypothesis might be that, that people are aware of bias, but it doesn't impact their choices. So women might say, okay, I see these data, I see that bias is there, but I really love science. So I'm just going to go for it. And I'm not going to let that hinder my choices or engagement with these questions. So we want to test this idea directly in this research. So in these studies, we recruited undergraduate participants. So I'll show you one uh, results from one study now. Um, and what we did here was manipulate the existence or the salience of gender bias within a STEM field. So we gave them identical articles except for one factor. So the first article here is an actual article that covered the results of the study that I've just shown you. So it's talking about how research is demonstrating gender bias. Or we gave them a very similar article altered only to say that the science doesn't show evidence of bias. So here we're manipulating the presence of bias and we want to look at the consequences for students' decision making and their aspirations. Oh, and I should say we pre-tested these articles to make sure they were viewed as equivalently credible, interesting, all that. And we pre-screened for anyone who was already familiar with the research, which uh, surprisingly or not surprisingly, most undergraduates were not. <laughs> so we didn't have much trouble there. So we measured then um, their awareness of bias, their um, extent to which they felt positively towards these STEM fields, <clears throat> their sense of belonging in STEM fields, the extent to which they feel that this is a place for them, and maybe most interestingly, at least to me, is their aspirations to go forward in these STEM fields. So the extent to which that they would like to take classes or become a major or go on to graduate school and engage in these fields. So here's what we find. First, for awareness of bias, here we find a significant main effect of bias condition as well as participant gender. So I'll walk you through this. But I'll say now that this is the only variable where we find an effect of participant gender, and let me show you what this looks like. So we find that in the gender bias condition, they're more aware of bias, both male and female students, relative to the gender equality condition. But in general, women are more aware of bias than men. So this is important when we think about how these processes might be contributing in some ways to the underrepresentation of women. If they are on average more aware, these next variables that I'm going to show you maybe more salient amongst students, amongst female students than male. So we find significant differences between conditions then for the other variables. So in the bias condition, both male and female students report reduced positive attitudes towards STEM. So they're less positive in their thinking about these fields when they're exposed to the reality of gender bias. Reduced sense of belonging, so bias Awareness of bias or, or the presence of bias reduces their sense that this is a, a place that they belong. And same pattern for aspirations. So when we expose students to the reality of bias in these fields, they're less likely to be excited about going on in these STEM domains. Yeah? Why is it also true for men? 
Yeah, so that's a great question, right? Um, and the way that we've thought about it so far, we're finding these negative effects for male and female students. And I think in part that speaks to the generality of this process, that awareness of bias may be a broad deterrent, right? If we know that there's bias in a field, keep in mind who these participants were as well. They're a fairly progressive, um, young, Skidmore student population. So awareness of bias may be broadly cutting off our access to needed talent in these fields and deterring students. But remember that I showed you that women on average in the beginning were, were more aware of these things. So if the consequences are really linked to awareness, then this could still help us understand women's underrepresentation. If they are more so than men aware of bias in their everyday life, then these subsequent consequences may be more salient for them. Great question. <coughs> So important takeaway from this work is that not only do we have evidence of bias, but we have evidence that it matters and that it really shapes the ways that students think about whether they want to move forward in these different domains, that the presence of bias can undermine their enthusiasm and their sense of belonging and their aspirations and ambitions for the future. So I think taken together, what we've talked about so far today really raises the need for developing effective interventions that can hopefully target these biases and, and reduce them um, across STEM fields. So that's what I'd like to, to share with you is, is um, some, some work in that area. I want to pause the first second. Any questions so far about the first two uh, lines of research we've talked about? Yeah. For the undergrads, um, were they in STEM major to begin with? We had a really good spread of interest. So these are first-year students, um, so they haven't declared a major yet, which is an interesting time to sample them for a, a project like this. Um, they were about, I think they were f like 45% of folks who indicated that they were interested in a STEM field, and then about 30 who said they wanted to go on in arts, and then the remainder were, humani were uh, humanities fields. So we have a nice mix. Yeah? Follow-up. So sure. did you see any difference between like the STEM versus the not, okay. Yeah, it's a great question, and I expected to. Um, or you might predict, right, that, that <coughs> students who are initially more engaged would, would either be buffered or potentially differentially vulnerable, um, but we're not seeing those differences, at least in the same way. Other questions or thoughts so far? Yeah? Do you think that the men are kind of defaulting to this um, very fair system, and so if you were to prime not biased, but meritocracy, that mm -hmm. women would just come up to the level of men? That women would, I less less come them. up to the level of men because men are already seeing this as a very fair system, that primary meritocracy would just make them equal to that? Yeah, it's a neat idea. It's a really neat idea. And we don't, we don't do anything in the beginning about shaping their, their value system or, or reinforcing sort of what they're expecting. I like the idea of sort of playing with that and, and seeing the, the consequences. And keep in mind also that these are self-report measures. So with implicit data that we're analyzing now, we may see some differences in men's and women's responses. So it, it may just be, you know, particularly for this population, egalitarianism is a strongly held value. Um, so, so men may be, um, in, in this population, reporting in ways that, that could potentially be different than, than others. So we may see some differences in the implicit data. I don't know how big your sample is, but I wonder if there's any possibility of doing a follow-up to see like what percentage of people declared. You stem. read our mind. Okay. We're on it. <laughs> Stay tuned. Right. Yeah, so we're tracking those data. They're required to declare their major by the end of their sophomore year. Yeah. So we'll be able to follow up on that. 
Yeah, because it just seems like there's something like for the men, I just feel like it's a little bit like they're saying that they don't want to do it because it seems like the right thing to say yeah, a little bit. Be. And so I think the behavioral measure will be fascinating. Could be, absolutely. I'm interested that we don't see that same effect, though, in awareness of bias. It seems like if this is just socially desirable reporting, we would see it totally across the board. But I think you're right. And so that's why we're looking at these other kinds of variables, too. Is there a hand over here? Yeah, I have a quick question. Yeah. I just want to, I've been thinking about similar ideas. So we've been thinking some similar ideas. And one to take, so we've tried to measure this type of bias too in designing ways to do it mm -hmm. in similar ways as you like giving information and keeping really the difference small between men and women mm -hmm. but so one critique that we've gotten is that even though I have perfect information I have a stereotype in mind mm -hmm. and so I see these two um, John, John, John and Jennifer mm -hmm. and they're equally competent but I still think that Jennifer is taken out of this pool of women that act in this way. So mm -hmm. even though her CV looks like this, she as a person, you know, might come to the lab and cry or whatever, be emotional or, you know. Someone will and fall so in love with her. So, you know, this is a critique that we've been getting and mm -hmm. I'm just really curious if you've thought of this and if mm -hmm. so, what your thoughts are. It's a great question. The reasons why people might exhibit bias against an equivalently qualified woman relative to the equal man are different from whether or not they are displaying that bias, right? So most people want to justify their decision-making and their behavior. They want to feel, at least to themselves, that they're rational beings. So there's all sorts of reasons why people might say, okay, despite what's in front of me on this CV, I'm bringing my whole cultural worldview to this moment of decision-making. So there's going to be all sorts of reasons why people might feel that a biased choice is a rational choice. But it's still a biased choice, particularly when we have such a clean comparison as we do here. We know that you know, ultimately, regardless of what these cognitions are, that, that may be enacted by very well-meaning individuals, they are making differential selections between people with the equivalent qualifications. So I think you know, we, we could, and I often have, spent a, a long time thinking through what could be all of those justifications or rationalizations. There's a host of them. But at the end of the day, I think you know, the role of, of anything else, including those lifestyle choices aside, we can agree that we, we would hope that the equivalently qualified students would be judged equivalently. And, and these data shows that they're not. Yeah? There seems to be this catch to the, if we want to empower our undergraduates to say, change the culture in the math department, instead of going ask for them to recognize that there might be an issue that all want to fix together. Mm -hmm. It seems like you're saying the less we know that this problem exists, the aspirations and desire to be in that department or that major might decrease. Yeah. Are you going to speak to that? Well, I'll speak to it right now. <laughs> um, it is, it is, I couldn't agree more. So we cannot stop here, right? We can't stop by just publishing studies that show, oh gosh, there's a huge problem, and then kind of throw up our hands and say, ta-da, do with this what you will. I mean, people are then going to behave rationally, right? They're going to be influenced by that, um, that inequity in the system. So that's a nice transition, I think, into the, the rest of the studies that I want to show you today, looking at interventions, because I think our, our job isn't done just demonstrating that there's a problem, but it's really useful to think about, okay, what do we do next, um, both from a theoretical perspective, but also in a more practical sense. So let's talk about um, this next line of research, and then I'll, I'll take uh, much more, uh, more questions and, and conversation at the end. 
So what we're doing here in, in a series of studies um, funded very generously by the Sloan Foundation, um, so I'll, I'll share with you some preliminary findings from a really large body of research that's ongoing, and I'm happy to speak to other studies as well. Our broad goal here is to develop and test and implement evidence-based interventions that will hopefully raise awareness of bias and reduce bias itself within the STEM community. And our goal here really is to be, um, is, is really to derive these interventions from existing evidence. So rather than testing interventions that are sort of guided by intuitions or anecdotes, we really want to be as, as theoretically grounded and evidence-based as possible. There are very few existing interventions that are specifically designed for the STEM community. And for folks who are familiar with the literature on the efficacy of diversity trainings in other domains, you know that there's very mixed evidence of their effectiveness, right? So, so some of them seem to be maybe working, some of them seem to have no effect, some of them seem to have paradoxical negative boomerang effects. So not a lot of great literature on what we can do effectively to intervene in a, in a diversity context. <clears throat> and the, the interventions that exist in other domains that don't work seem to be problematic in part because they intentionally or unintentionally imply blame, right? So participants come to a diversity training and somehow the tone becomes very accusatory. And then their response is to sort of be reactive as a result. So we want to try to avoid that. The approach that we chose to take was to utilize engrossing media rather than sort of a more didactic training approach. There's great evidence, so this is um, Betsy Pollock's work in Rwanda, post-genocidal Rwanda. There's great evidence that engaging media can really be effective in reducing intergroup prejudice and conflict, in part because it's a wonderful opportunity to do something that we know from the literature is effective at reducing prejudice, which is to expose people to vivid examples of people who are violating stereotypes, or, or let me put that in a different way, um, who are counter-stereotypic exemplars, so people who don't live up to these traditional stereotypes. So exposure to um, counter-stereotypic folks can be very effective at reducing stereotypes. So we want to engage some of those strategies in this intervention. And what we did specifically was to partner with professional filmmakers, um, which is a really interesting thing to do as a social scientist. Um, I'd never held auditions before, um, but this was, this was really exciting. Um, to create 12 high quality, short, five minute long films. So specifically, um, these, each of these films communicated the results of a published empirical paper on gender bias. So we chose six papers that we thought were really great illustrations of the literature in this area. I'm happy to talk more about what those papers were, how we chose them, if folks are interested. And we wanted to demonstrate them, not through just sort of a classroom presentation, but this engaging media format. And we did so in two different ways. So two formats, two conditions here. The first is the narrative condition. So these are six films that illustrate the results of social science papers on bias using, so a playwright uh, created these scenes, um, so illustrating these effects in a fictional science department with characters that you come to sort of be familiar with. So I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. But rather than just hearing someone summarize a paper or attempting to read a paper oneself, 
you can see those effects illustrated in the actual lives of characters in a science department. In the intellectual condition, again, it's the same six papers, same information, but presented in a more straightforward way, still engaging media. So think of like a, um, like a Diane Sawyer type interview, um, still actors portraying um, the expert and the interviewer, but a much more straightforward presentation of fact. And again, the, the research findings identical <coughs> across conditions. So I wish I had time to show you some of the videos now, um, but these stills will give you a sense for what we did. So here are some examples of the narrative condition. Again, this is where compelling characters are illustrating the results of social science papers. And then some stills from the intellectual condition. So these more straightforward, yet still engaging And let me highlight the idea of the conceptual equivalence across conditions. So let me, with, with an example. So here's one of the target articles that we picked, a paper by Rudman and Glick that's demonstrating backlash or social and economic penalties against individuals who violate gender stereotypes. So in the intellectual condition, the main finding of this paper is discussed in a fairly straightforward way. So talking about what backlash is and how women encounter backlash when they behave agentically, when they behave in more masculine stereotypic ways. In the narrative condition, this finding is illustrated with a five-minute scene in which um, male and female students are both practicing for their department before they're going to go out and give these talks at a big science conference. The male student is behaving very agentically, very confidently, very aggressively and the faculty respond very positively to him. When his female co-presenter is trained to behave in a similar way, they respond very negatively. So illustrating backlash. So consequences of this agentic behavior for women, but not men. So rather than just hearing that punchline, you really see it play out. Any questions at all about the design of the interventions themselves? So we contrasted these with a control condition. These were interesting science documentaries. They were pilot tested as equivalent to the intervention conditions in a couple of key ways. First, there were equal numbers of female and male scientists portrayed, so we're controlling for role models or the gender disparity portrayal, or the gender composition. They were rated as equally entertaining relative to the narrative condition and equally informative relative to the intellectual condition but they contain no mention of bias-related information. So participants here are randomly assigned to one of these three conditions, intellectual, narrative, or control. So for the first study that I'll tell you about in this line of work, our participants are from the general population, so not having any unusual levels of STEM expertise. So here's where we started. And we had two data collection time points for this study. One is immediately post-intervention, so right away what are the effects. The second is six months later, and we are just now analyzing one-year follow-up data. So I can give you a preview of those as well. Sorry, yeah, one quick question. Yeah. Are the actors the same, like the, the actual actors? So the actors in the narrative condition consistently play the same roles across those five but, scenes. But they're not the same in the intellectual condition as the narrative? That's condition. right, but we did pretest to make sure that those actors were viewed as attractive and likable and, in, and understandable, all that. So we think that their performance is pretty equivalent across. All right, so 
we have a host of dependent variables here that, that we could talk about. I want to give you uh, just, uh, again, a sort of big picture view of what we're, what we're finding here. So I'm going to concentrate on two variables today. First is awareness of bias, and second is bias itself. And we measure this using the modern sexism scale, a really commonly used, well-validated measure of contemporary bias against women. So here's what we find. We did not have a priori predictions about which condition would be most effective in this first study. We didn't feel that there was a strong enough theoretical basis in the literature to predict whether intellectual or narrative um, would be more effective. A any guesses? Any predictions? Which term? Narrative. 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 I always say it this way. <laughs> let's, uh, let's see what we find. So this is for awareness of bias. We find that the narrative condition um, is resulting in significantly greater awareness of bias relative to control, as is the intellectual condition. Effect sizes here both large, um, intellectual condition a bit larger. No significant decay at six month follow up. <clears throat> so some of these means look like they're bopping around a little bit, but no significant differences there. So at six months, we're finding persistence of the effects. And let me show you the effects for bias now. <clears throat> So significant difference between control and intellectual condition. Intellectual condition significantly reducing bias. The narrative condition there is marginal. So intellectual seems to be popping a little bit more. Again, no decay at six months. So six months later, after watching these very brief movies on their own computers on the internet, we're finding a, a reduction of, um, of bias that lingers to that point. Yeah. I'm sorry, I may have uh, missed this point. In mm -hmm. the narrative condition, were they told that this is a narrative of a paper? Great question. So I should have, um, I should clarify that. They are told that these are um, the, what they're going to see reflects the results of published social science research, as well as the anecdotal experiences of men and women in these fields. So the way that the playwright constructed these scenes was to take a deep dive into the literature with us and get really familiar with what those findings were. And then we held focus groups where we asked men and women to tell us stories about their experiences of bias or, or not in these fields. So those were the, um, the actual storytelling mechanisms that she used to illustrate the results. So once we knew what the result was, we used someone's actual real world experience to tell that story. Does that make sense? Yeah. So they knew that these were, these, these were both supported by data and by anecdote. Yeah. Did you guys manage to control for how the how the participants are watching them, like in a, in the sense of you know if we made this part of a diversity training, for example, in an organization versus like you said sitting at home and watching it on their own? Yeah, so that's one thing that we're really interested in. We did ask a lot of questions about you know what environment were you in when you watched this. We asked them to be somewhere quiet where they would be um, where they wouldn't be disturbed. Um, and then at the end we said, tell us about how you watch this. So we don't find any differences in, there's not a lot of differences in how they report. They, they basically said they sat down and watched it. Um, but some people did say, I stopped in the middle to watch a movie, or two days later, I came back to this. And we don't find any differences in, in what, what they're reporting in terms of that. But one, one thing I'll speak to at the very end, um, one direction that we're headed now is to, um, is to think about the best ways to implement these on a more institution or, or systemic level and, and show them sort of in, in groups and think about discussion questions that might guide reactions to them. So that's one thing that we're working on now is what's the, what's the best way to view these. Is there another hand? 
Yeah. Are there any plans to potentially see like with a combination of intellectual and narrative? Yeah. Like yep. So so we have a hybrid condition um, where we look at both, and the effectiveness of it seems to be about in the middle. So I think um, it's working, which yeah. is cool. Um, but it seems like one approach. Let me show you the next study. Um, seems to be really particularly effective. Yeah. <laughs> the quality of the playwright. Yeah. So she, we, we held an open call, um, and most of the people who submitted were from the Yale School of Drama. They were grads um, from there, and she was. And she actually, she just really impressed us. Her, her written work seemed really great. We had a panel of about a dozen readers to select the playwright, and her partner was a biology PhD student. So she was really fluent already in a lot of the sort of language of the kinds of science that she was writing about. But she was the um, nearly unanimous choice as just an exciting playwright to work with. Can I just follow? Yeah. In terms of scaling um, to possibly corporations and mm -hmm. various groups, would you, would you think of creating actually institutional university scaling partnerships for that kind of system approach? This is incredible stuff. Thank you. So, so I just want to make sure I understand your question. So, partnering with individual institutions to think about like how best to yeah so yeah Harvard and MIT and it's something we're really interested in. And if we get a minute at the end, I'll tell you a little bit more about some of the stuff we've been testing about the best way to to implement um, some of these videos. Yeah. The University of Michigan has an advanced group which has players that go around yeah. and do essentially a narrative We play, were inspired by them. And then they interact with the audience. Mm -hmm. How effective is that? Or is there any evidence? Is that more or less effective than your five-minute um, they have They have some informal internal evaluation data um, that suggests that it's very effective at raising awareness of bias. And, and not, I don't want to summarize their data for them, um, but not quite as effective at moving bias itself and related variables. But, but not a systemic evaluation of that project as far as I've known. But we were really, we, were really, we loved them. They we were, were excited yeah. by them yeah. as well. Let me show you um, just a bit more data and then I'm happy to take all uh, the remaining questions. Um, so, some, some exciting potential from this, this first snapshot of data that I've showed you. Um, but a really important unanswered question, remember who these participants were, right? They were from the general population. They were adults from the general population. So we need to know, do these findings generalize to the STEM community more specifically? So in this experiment, we sought to replicate these effects with academic scientists again. So here now we have biology, chemistry, engineering, and physics professors as our participants. And we also wanted a more robust measure of change over time. So now we have three time points that I'll show you. Um, a pre-measure pre baseline a week before, then immediate post right after the intervention, and then one week following. Um, and we have six-month data coming in soon for this. So any, anything I show you now is going to be change from baseline. Yeah, can you tell you a little bit more about how you recruited these people? So I noticed, noticed it's like 55%. Female, yep. like what was your, like the response rate? What yep. the rest of them do? So our response rate here was very high. For this study, we partnered with the National Academy Summer Institutes for um, Science Education. Mm -hmm. So these are um, seven workshops that are held throughout the uh, country, um, and they these were held over the course of the last summer. And so these are folks who are choosing to go to a week long program where they're going to get all sorts of advanced training. 
We measure them before they go, so anything going on at that institute isn't impacting them. But there are some selection concerns that we want to think about, right? These are folks who are already sort of invested in advanced training when they think about their mentoring of research students. Um, but, but we partnered with them to invite those folks to participate. And 87% um, chose to. We were able to compensate them. Um, so they were happy to participate. Or they, they did participate. I can't say they were happy. <laughs> okay, so for awareness of bias, we see significant difference between control and narrative, whopping difference between control and intellectual. This persists, oh, and, and again, a, a, here we see a, a significant difference between narrative and intellectual. So again, these are the STEM faculty, and this intellectual condition seems to be really working for them. And no significant decay in one week. Similar pattern for bias itself. So significant difference between control and narrative, between control and intellectual, and between narrative and intellectual. And again, no significant decay. So, <clears throat> summary of where we are. I've shown you um, a, a sort of a, a snapshot of some of the data that we've collected so far, suggesting that we have a promising evidence-based intervention that can increase awareness of bias and reduce bias itself among different kinds of populations, general population and STEM faculty, and preliminary evidence that the intellectual approach may be particularly effective, particularly for science faculty members who are trained uh, to wait data calmly and sort of be objective or as objective as possible in their thinking. And we have some evidence that these effects are persisting, at least to the six-month level. And in the one-year post data that we're reviewing right now, we're finding the same trends. So some lingering of these effects, again, from a, a very brief, scalable, <coughs> affordable intervention that's evidence-based. So where we're going, uh, we are in the process of analyzing additional explicit um, or stated conscious outcomes. So we've measured um, emotional reactions, and we've gotten really interested in um, the extent to which people are likely to engage in collective action around um, mobilizing around issues that would promote diversity and reduce, um, reduce bias. And we also have some interesting findings looking at the extent to which participants may blame themselves um, or feel a reduced sense of belonging. What I'll say about this, it, it ties into a couple of questions that people have raised already, is that we are finding that the interventions have a negative effect on their, their sense of belonging and their, the, the extent to which they blame themselves, particularly men, for these issues. So what we've done in thinking about that is develop a training module that we expose participants to after they watch the intervention video. So they watch the video, and then they do this module that says, now we know this is a problem, here's what you can do. Here are empirically based strategies to tackle bias in your classroom, in your lab, in your mentoring relationships. So don't despair, right? There's things that we can do that we know from the literature that are effective that you can implement. And we find that that buffers against these negative effects. So that's one thing that we think about a lot when we think about how could we implement this at the institutional level or at the nationwide level. What do we need to pair these interventions with so that they, are, they promote positive change rather than paralysis or discouragement? 
Um, we're also analyzing data on, on additional uh, implicit, sort of gut level uh, reactions, as well as behaviors themselves. And then, as I've been mentioning, testing the best way to implement these. Yeah. Yeah, so this is so interesting. And one of the things that strikes me, and I wonder if you've thought about examining this, is like, the so these interventions are effective, right? Um, and they have long-term long effects, but people, like, the same way that they feel negative about themselves maybe after the intervention, like they also probably anticipate that negative feeling when they think about like, you know, diversity training or, you know, like mm -hmm. so there's like, like mm -hmm. what's the barrier to getting people to actually seek out these training mm -hmm. programs to go to that thing that you were describing that the that you recruited the participants from, like what makes people actually want to do that in the first place? Because I think yeah. like that's where like the next barrier is, is to actually get people to want to expose themselves to something that's going to make them feel bad before they can do something good. Fantastic question. And it's a big question, right? So so our data can't speak to that directly. You know, what, what are the best ways that we can um, encourage people to seek out or even, you know, be open to these interventions when they are available to them? One thing I would say is that um, when you think about the barriers that exist, some of them exist because existing trainings are so variable, right, in the experience of being in them, um, they get a bad rap. And, and some of them, the evidence suggests, are not very effective. So one hope is that, you know, if, if we're able to develop more high-quality interventions, there may be less of a gut-level reactance against participating in them. But I think your question is a really important next question to address of, of how do we sort of tear down those barriers to begin with. It's almost like a marketing question. Like, how do you, mm -hmm. like, market these things effectively mm -hmm. so that people, like, want to adopt, you know. That's right. Like, want to participate in them. That's I just it. wonder if, if you took some of the stuff about, like, the end, for example, like, what you were telling them about, like, here are all the great things you can now do. Like, you know, I, I bet that people don't think about those, mm -hmm. you know, in anticipation. And if you reframe their thinking from all the concerns mm -hmm. they have and focus them more on, these are all the positive things we'll do, be mm -hmm. able to do as a result of this, like maybe that would be one effective way of getting to do it in the first place. I think that's an intriguing idea, and I think you really hit the nail on the head that it's a, it's a marketing problem, it's a persuasion problem, it's a branding problem, right? So, so smart folks in those areas should, uh, should, should help us think about these things. Yeah? Could you also scale it or do a pilot with the government? Like for instance, in a month or so, there's a big STEM <coughs> summit here. Mm -hmm. Um, thousands are going to be at Gillette Stadium, and I'm thinking it's so important to state, for instance, and I wonder if you could do a, a small pilot at a government level, levels, in just a small city. Perhaps. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a, that's, a, that's a, also an interesting idea. <clears throat> Was there, yeah. One comment and three short questions. Okay. The comment <laughs> is um, concerns institutionalization on a national level. Mm -hmm. There's um, in Brazil, there are those telenovelas, and they have received quite some coverage by the economists also. Yeah. It's interesting because apparently they reduce the acceptance of household violence and other um, issues that are really relevant for, mm -hmm. for women. So those, maybe there's even some, re some research on this. And now the there's three a bit. quick questions. Sure. First, I would be, it would be interesting to look at repeat treatment administration and whether that could lead to reactants, in particular with the intellectual treatment. If I receive that, like if I'm shown that movie over and over again, maybe at one point, that could lead to reaction, whereas the other one, the more popular one, could still be good, just as the telenovela apparently shows. Mm -hmm. Then also I was wondering what happens if you collect the DV, the dependent variable, let's say the, um, the awareness of bias, if you just uh, um, test that 
let's say, a, a week later and don't test it right afterwards. Because mm. if I'm made aware that mm -hmm. this is about the awareness of bias mm -hmm. and then I'm asked again a week later, I might say, well, I'm consistent, so I still am aware. Yeah, methodologically that's tricky, though, because we want some kind of comparison point, right? If we only ask later, then we can't really speak to change over time, right? And so then we would really, then we'd be just relying on mm -hmm. comparisons to the control condition to speak to the effectiveness. Yeah, so I hear you. Repeated measurement may alert them to some of this, um, but but that's that's the the tricky part is we want something we would like something to compare to. And the dropouts did they um, was there a difference between the control? No, nope. no missingness by condition effects. So they're they're not differentially um, leaving the study uh, based on condition, and, and part of that is because we did. We did pay them after each time they participated, so we really don't have, we have very low dropout rates um, to begin with. Was there a hand in the back? Yeah. Yeah, I'm curious if you were able to measure uh, real world changes beyond changes in the scale, because oftentimes yeah. making people aware of their own biases does not result yep. in any actual change. Agreed. So what we're working on now is looking at behavioral outcomes more directly. So what we're doing is recruiting third-party coders, so these are colleagues of folks who participated and students. This is quite difficult, um, but it's what we're working on now, um, to uh, code their actual behaviors in their home institutions. So things like the extent to which um, they tend to call on male versus female students in their classes, um, how they think about their mentoring relationships and the gender composition of their lab, um, just as, as behavioral as we can really get. And, and this is an ongoing site, and I can't I don't have any data to share with you yet, but but just to say we, we totally agree that we really want to look at behaviors um, more directly um, rather than just those self-reports and the implicit data as well. So the implicit data we're analyzing now are showing really similar patterns to the explicit data. So we think that there's more going on than, than sort of just a social desirable responding effect, um, but we would like to speak to that more. Yeah. You mentioned that after the awareness of bias and you make these people aware, you then tell them how they can feel better about themselves and what they can do. Can you share with us what are the things that can one can do to <coughs> overcome this? Yeah. Well, I just want to give you the module. Um, <laughs> and I'm happy to I'm happy to chat with you after about okay. sort of more more of the specifics that we okay. put in that. Um, but but those are um, we have a snazzy acronym and I God I wish I could remember it now. Um, Someone is sapping all of my memory. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but we share things like um, like thinking about calling um, on a gender diverse group of students in the classroom, and we share. Th so they're all results of research, right? We right, want right, to say right, here right. are some published studies that suggest that there are these evidence based practices that you can engage in, and I'd be happy to share more examples. Okay. Let me just let me just wrap up really quickly, and then we'll, we'll finish our conversation because I want to leave you. I want to leave you with some final thoughts about why why this is critical work to be engaged with. So let's let's play devil's advocate for a second. Why should we care about bias in STEM? Why why is this an important topic? And, and here here are a few thoughts that speak to that. So first, there's a really pressing shortage of trained STEM workers. A report that came out of the White House a few years ago suggests that we will have up to a million person deficit in trained STEM workers over the course of the next decade. One way that we could fill this gap or address this gap is to do a better job recruiting and retaining populations that we've traditionally struggled to recruit and retain, like women and people of color. STEM jobs are good jobs. Um, apart from just personal opinions about whether or not they're interesting, we know that unemployment rates are lower in STEM relative to other fields. 
And particularly women in STEM earn on average at least $6,000 a year more than women in other fields. So these are really great opportunities and we should be clearing the pathways for folks who are talented and interested and excited about these areas. The problem is not going away on its own. It's not fixing itself. So it's, it's tempting in the beginning to think, you know, this is antiquated. This will just sort of, for lack of a better word, die out over time. But I want to remind you that there were no age effects, no cohort effects in our studies. So this is not something that's just going to kind of age out of a culture on its own without more direct engagement um, in thinking about how to solve this problem. And we know from our colleagues in organizational behavior and industrial organizational psychology and other areas that there's evidence that diverse groups often produce superior outcomes, particularly, this is some of Robin and Eli and colleagues' work, over in the business school, <clears throat> especially when diverse perspectives are valued and encouraged. So diversifying these workforces could really improve the quality of some of the work that is taking place. There are real advantages to a heterogeneous group of, of people in some contexts. <clears throat> and so for these reasons, I would argue that gender parity or, or addressing gender bias really is in the best interest of our national competitiveness and of the advancement of the scientific enterprise itself. We really, we need these labs to be functioning at the absolute highest levels. Sometimes life hanging, or life, life saving um, in interventions or developments really hang in, in the balance there. And if we're systematically preventing the full participation of people from certain groups, then we all stand to lose. We all stand to be affected by that. So I think in these ways of uh, thinking about bias and the way that gender stereotypes play into it and how we can um, better develop effective interventions really is in the best interest of STEM meritocracy and diversity and excellence. So I want to make sure to thank my collaborators for this work um, and our very generous funding sources, um, my students in my lab for, for working on this, and all of you for being here. And I'm really eager in our remaining 15 minutes or so to hear more of your comments and questions. Thanks so much. I wonder yeah. if there's a way to look at this more systematically, because when I think about the, the concept of research and social science, once we get to the college level, graduate level, the bias is already so systemic, it's already been so established mm -hmm. that looking for treatments or remedies at that level would not be as effective if, as if we trace where the bias began with. So if we're starting at preschool levels, if we're starting about children and mathematics, by the time you have women who are interested in STEM fields, so many of them have dropped off. Yeah. Uh, and it's not your only drop off as declaring a major. It's already being ingrained and grown in that area, grown mm -hmm. in that area. And so I'm wondering if there's a way to pool research so that we're really looking at the development stage of where should we really be targeting it? Are there, or should our efforts be more at the um, main education level? Yeah, what a great point. Um, so we know there's there's some great studies that show that you know even very young elementary school age children show these biases even on an implicit level. So it's something, again, that's stemming from these broadly <coughs> accessible cultural stereotypes. So I, I'm working with a couple of colleagues in, um, in developmental psychology to look at what might be effective moments for intervening from a child's perspective to sort of interrupt some of these stereotypes. But that's a different question than how do we develop interventions that would target folks who interact with students when they're quite young. 
So we haven't we haven't done that work yet, um, and and I think it would be a great it would be a great project to do. Is would the, maybe these same interventions would work for, you know, preschool teachers and elementary school teachers? And I think it's an interesting empirical question. Yeah. Well, I wonder if you had a chance to look at other countries in the world, because in other countries the uh, participation in STEM professions is higher, mm -hmm. and to find out how they got there or whether they even had to get there, maybe they were there already. Uh, what is the reality of this country in terms of this And I just wanted to mention that in context, it would be hardly surprising that somebody would argue that equally qualified students. If one is a man and one is a woman, the woman is more likely to drop out or work part time for a certain period of time in their life and therefore have less value to the institution. Because it's true, we, and until we have those, until we have policies, well, at the level of the firm and at the level of the government that uh, support uh, parents and their children, it's going to be meaningful. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't think we can have this discussion in, in the abstract or out of, con out of the context of this blatant fact. Um, so, great points. I have not, we have not yet done cross-cultural work testing these specific hypotheses or these interventions. There is some, some work to suggest that there, sh there is a link in the magnitude of um, gender bias and that, that it's connected to um, levels of women's representation, right? So in, in areas where there are more women in STEM, this is a paper that just came out a few months ago, um, from Alice Agley's lab at Northwestern, um, that the the number of women who are in particular fields are, is, is negatively correlated with the level of bias. So it may be the case that, um, and that's certainly not a causal relationship, but but the, those things are associated. Um, and and you make an excellent point, right? That that these policies are not unrelated to the biases that are um, that are that we then observe. And I think that's another reason to think really carefully about policies we put in place. The one caveat that I would offer, the one the one sort of thing I would add to that, though, is that um, we don't have great data in many areas about the, the real consequences for women's productivity of the fact that they, they could um, become parents at some point. So there is one really neat study that actually shows in academia a boost in productivity around a maternity leave, right? Because it's scheduled, you know when it's coming, <laughs> it's time to get your papers out. So there's this sort of assumption, right, that women may be a liability for an institution in terms of productivity cost that may or may not actually be borne out by, by data. And I am not an expert on that, but I think it's something that is, is really provocative for further study. Other questions? Yeah. When you showed us the graph of the gender bias being measured among professors, mm -hmm. um, was that just self-reported? Was there just a question that said, do you feel this so this is a, a, a what we call a between subjects design, right? So half the participants are reading about um, a student named John, half are reading about Jennifer. They're identically, they're the identical application is just a different name. And we ask, um, we give them a scale of um, how competent they think the student is, um, the salary that they would pay them, how likely they'd be to mentor them. So multiple questions along each of those scales. I think you might be asking about the modern sexism yeah, scale. Oh, 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 sorry, the, the intervention study where we use yes. the modern, because we didn't use the modern sexism scale in that, in that first study of faculty bias. Right, but uh, you had these graphs that showed us that, you know, after six months, you know, these yep. measures of gender bias. <coughs> so that's the modern sexism scale. Um, that's a, I think I have some items somewhere. 
um, but that's a, a really commonly used um, scale. Trying to measure contemporary manifestations of um, bias against women. So not just saying um, how much do you like women or do you think that women should never be allowed to work or you know the items that would be um, difficult to see movement on potentially. Um, there are things like it is easy to understand the anger of um, women's groups in this country today. And if you say no, then that's sort of an index of what you're, where, where you're at in terms of a sort of more modern um, form of bias. Does that, does that answer your question? Yes. Thanks. Thank you. Other questions? Yeah. Hi. Um, I'm curious if you think that the direction for the interventions, um, if it should go in the direction of um, sort of changing mindset as opposed to changing social perception. And this is sort of building off of Iris Burnett's talk. Um, mm -hmm earlier this month where she highlighted the Rwanda, post-Rwanda um, study. Oh, really? And talked about, you know, the group effect of being exposed to the same um, counter-stereotypical information. So just curious about sort of your opinion on what you think the direction should be with these types of interventions. So I want to really understand your question. It, it, you're asking about changing mindset versus? Um, social perception. So Iris um, sort of gotcha. highlighted, um, you know, the value of changing behavior by changing social perception and mm -hmm. that mindset can actually stay constant yeah. um, and behavior can change based off of you know the changing environment. So, so curious. I would say I, I'm I'm really receptive to that idea. And partly it's because um, it's a really high bar to truly change hearts and minds, right? Um, and and sometimes I get pessimistic um, that you know it, is our goal to fully eradicate any hint of biased responding from all participants? Of course not. You know that's that's a really high bar to set. And and you could easily make the argument that um, when you think about theoretically the way that we try to understand stereotyping prejudice, particularly within social psychology, is um, thinking about these sort of dual process models. So stereotype activation, stereotype application. Do we need to intervene at the activation moment? There's, there's evidence we might not need to. If we're really effectively able to think about controlling or, or giving people tools to manage that activation moment, or the application moment, activation is, is a much harder thing to, to really tackle because we're all just steeped in this culture that um, gives us repeated exposure to those stereotypes. So I, I think that's a really interesting idea, is, is how do we, and I think we've, we've tried to implement that in these interventions, is thinking about um, what you do with that information rather than demonizing whether you have any biased responses at all. Yeah, great question. Other questions, yeah. It's interesting with the narrative condition. Um, it, there's sort of a, like you, you talk about you said that the reason or the idea behind it was counter stereotypical exam exemplars, but then actually it seems like the way that you created the videos mm -hmm. was a around sort of a example of what the study was about. Right. So I'm just curious for your thoughts. On really that. great question. I've always wondered if someone would would uh, would ask that. So I'm glad to have the, the opportunity <laughs> to clarify. Um, so one thing that we know from um, from work by Calvin Lai and others is that really exposing people to counter-stereotypic exemplars is, is something that can, can address um, bias. So what we tried to do is show those whenever possible, in, and, and many of the other scenes do. So they'll show like a very competent 
female scientists. Or one of the scenes shows a male scientist who is not so interested in a really aggressive, ambitious, research-focused career. He says, "I, you know, I want to, I want to go to a liberal arts college where I can have some quality of life and where my teaching will be valued, or or, or um, things like that." She's a Skidmore alum, so I'm <laughs> <laughs> smiling at her. Um, and so we're trying to show examples whenever possible of folks who are challenging existing stereotypes. The, the one example of scene I gave was, was not a great example of that. So that's just a moment where we really are illustrating backlash. But we tried to do both, right, is, is demonstrate um, the research findings while also taking opportunities to highlight, hey, here are some folks who might challenge those underlying stereotypes. Yeah? Do you have any plans of pulling those apart and trying to test them What are you thinking? Like, how, how so? So having like, a video that doesn't communicate mm -hmm. results so there are some existing interventions, particularly in the domain of racial bias, that show that that can be very effective, even just to expose people to counter-stereotypic exemplars, um, even just a picture or, or think about or write about um, someone who sort of goes against these traditional stereotypes. So, so we know that's fairly effective. So we, were, we weren't thinking of, of developing new interventions that would just would just test that idea, but we're trying to kind of harness that idea in the service of, of focusing on this other task. Yeah? Thank you for a great talk. Oh, thank you. Um, so I'm wondering what the reaction is when people actually see your data. You have data that proves a very important point, mm -hmm. but there's still so much resistance, and change is, you know, change isn't really happening at, at a rate that we would expect. So how do you overcome that huge barrier? Thank you for a great question. Um, so I have actually two papers that speak to that idea. So one is um, a paper that was published earlier this year where we analyzed about a thousand comments that people wrote on articles that covered the first paper that I showed you. So we were interested, this is sort of this naturalistic data collection opportunity, um, what are people making of these data? So we analyzed them across um, several different websites and we find a, a host of very positive and very negative reactions we find a gender difference in those. So men were more likely to exhibit the sort of more reactive responses. But that's correlational data. So we have a paper that is in press um, now where we look at this question experimentally. Um, so we expose people to um, the abstract from the first study that I showed you, so evidence of bias, or the exact same abstract altered to say that we didn't find bias. And we pre-screen, of course, for folks who are not familiar with the research already. And we find a gender difference in the judgment of the quality of the science. So men, <laughs> I'm sorry, I hit, this is the only, the, I never find gender differences, but I don't want to put this on men, but men are, um, are um, judging the identical abstract more harshly when it demonstrates evidence of bias um, relative to women, and that trend is particularly robust amongst STEM faculty. So there's some, there's some worldview threat going on, um, there's some status threat going on. Um, so, so that's in, in press right now um, at PNAS, and now I've just totally blown that embargo, but um, watch for it. Um, so I think it speaks to your, I think it speaks to your point, right, is that there are layers of bias, um, and the quality of scientific evidence is in the eye of the beholder. 
Um, and we bring our preconceptions to our scientific literacy and our reading of the literature itself. So my hope has been through, throughout this process that having data that speak to these questions will be a lens into these conversations, will be a way for people to kind of come to the table, recognize that this is an issue that it's not a women's issue, it affects all of us, it affects the science that shapes our lives. So my hope is that data will allow us to speak to some of those moments more directly um, and, and move forward as a result. But, but thank you for your question. Yeah. Um, are the videos that you made now or eventually will be released yes. on open license? Yep, freely available. Yeah. I, mean, um, and, I mean, because I would love to use them myself. I mean, I belong to the faculty of STEM. I would love to use them with my own faculty. Thank you. Um, yep, so our agreement with our funders initially is that they'll be freely available on YouTube um, once we have finished our sort of first initial round of publishing. Um, and so that should be, I mean, God, I don't even want to, I don't want to curse it. That should be soon-ish, in the, the near-ish term future. But that's, that's always been a part of our plan. And open license? Like, could YouTube. I mix? Yeah, but YouTube, by default, is copyright, and you can use CC. They will be freely available, yeah. So, so I, 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 other people know better than I do sure. how we need to do that. But, but that's always been the plan, yeah, definitely. Other questions? Last question, yeah. Can we uh, make these slides available to us in, in the form? Fine with me. Yeah. Yeah, we'll put it on the event site. Yeah. Okay. So I'll send you a PDF of Great. Thank you all so much again for being here. I really appreciate it. Terrific. All right, wonderful. Yeah, it was really great. Thank you. Um, uh, please come and join us uh, next week uh, for uh, Shira Moore, who's a professor at uh, the Rotterdam School of um, Management. And um, she's going to talk about iron fist in a velvet glove, gender and professional identity integration, um, uh, promoting women's negotiation performance. So she says some cool stuff at the individual level of strategies. Yeah, she's really great. So, so we'll see you next week, hopefully.